Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. It's Amit and Dan. Thanks for joining us as we tour fellowship programs across the country. As part of the Cardio Nerds Case Report Series, produced in collaboration with the American College of Cardiology Fellows and Training section, each episode will feature a cardiology fellowship program. Fellows from that program will present and teach about a fascinating case and share what makes their hearts flutter about their program. Each case discussion is followed by an eCPR segment from a content expert and a message from their program director. Before we dive in, just remember, we are an independent educational platform. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The case you're about to hear is 100% HIPAA compliant. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardio Nerds. Our mission is simple, to democratize cardiovascular education, promote diversity and inclusion, empower everyone to learn and teach from the basics to the advanced while fostering wellness and humanity. If you believe in the mission, consider supporting us on patreon.com forward slash cardio nerds. Every little bit goes a long way. We're also excited to grow the platform by mentoring the next generation of cardio nerds. We are establishing the Cardio Nerds Academy and are looking for residents and fellows to join as Cardio Nerds Fellows. Please see the link in the episode description to submit an application. And now, without further ado, let's continue on our tour with another fascinating case from amazing Cardio Nerds colleagues. We are honored to be joined by cardiology fellows from the University of Tennessee. Here with us are Drs. William Black, Emmanuel Isaac, and Rachel Goodwin. Guys, welcome to the show. Would you mind introducing yourselves? Hey, cardio nerds. I'm Rachel Goodwin, first-year cardiology fellow here at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. Went to medical school at Lincoln Memorial, did my internal medicine residency at the University of Kentucky, and I'm from Nashville, Tennessee, originally. Hey, cardio nerds. My name is Emmanuel Isang. Um, I'm one of the second-year cardiology fellows here at uh, University of Tennessee. Originally born in Nigeria, but I've resided in Atlanta, Georgia, and Knoxville, Tennessee for most of my life. I went to Ross University and then completed my internal medicine residency here. I actually liked it so much that I decided to stick around for fellowship. Hey, cardio nerds. My name is William Black. I'm a third-year fellow here at UT and the chief cardiology fellow. I'm from Birmingham, Alabama originally. I went to medical school at the University of South Alabama and then back to Birmingham for internal medicine residency at Brookwood Baptist and now here at UT for cardiology fellowship. Amit, Dan, thank you so much for having us. We're really looking forward to this. We've been checking in on the previous episodes of the case report so far, and, and they've been fantastic. We've really learned a lot. Oh, thank you so much, William, Emmanuel, Rachel. This is music to our ears. And hearing from you guys, meeting you guys has been already a pleasure. And we are so excited to dive into a case. I have two things before we get started. One is, do people do, this is, this could be a really annoying question, but I like how they do the heart sounds, like fourth heart sound, and they do Kentucky. For, do, do people do that there? Is that a thing? <laughs> they definitely do that. There's Tennessee and Kentucky. <laughs> Lived in both places, and it's a thing. <laughs> And yeah, it's a good I was going to ask Rachel, since she's living in Kentucky and Tennessee, if she's particularly good at listening for gallops. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kentucky, Kentucky, Tennessee. 
gosh. And and do people do it with pride or is it like, here we go again? No, like, no. It's a complete source of confusion for anyone learning murmurs. <laughs> okay. Secondly, I'm closing my eyes. I have not been to Knoxville. I'm using Google Maps a little bit to scout out the situation, but bring me in. I'm just so ashamed that I haven't been there and I want to come and we'll get there eventually. But Take us on a journey on a magic carpet ride through Knoxville, Tennessee, and then land us at your favorite place to chill. It could be a hike, could be a restaurant, it could be anything. And we'll discuss the case there. Yeah, the best place to start outside of Knoxville is in the Smoky Mountains. You really can't beat uh, really taking a day hike and really being in the mountains and being next to the river and really just taking in nature. It's just so beautiful up there. Having that so close away from Knoxville and then coming back and then chilling in Market Square, going to a few restaurants and maybe catching a movie is a great day. I agree with that completely. I may add, we could stop on our way to the mountains at the Lonesome Dove and get some of Chef Tim Love's chocolate cake, which was the dessert that he used to win the Iron Chef. So it's fantastic. And uh, Amit, Dan, when you guys make it to Knoxville, highly recommend it. It's definitely worth a trip. But yeah, I agree with Rachel. You can't beat the scenery of the Smoky Mountains National Parks just under an hour away from the heart of downtown Knoxville. So lots of great hiking and outdoor activities there. It's all always a favorite spot. Why don't we go get some chocolate cake? A moment on the lips forever on the hips, but I'm sure it sounds like it'll be totally worth it. And we could chat about our discussion there and maybe move on later for some hiking to sweat that off. All right, let's start off with our case. So there's no shortage of interesting patients here in East Tennessee, and this one was no exception. We have a 39-year-old male who was referred to our cardiology clinic for evaluation of recurrent ascites and lower extremity edema. He was diagnosed with IgA nephropathy in his early 20s and eventually went on to develop end-stage renal disease. Fortunately, he received a deceased donor kidney transplant several years later and did quite well after the transplant until he began having these issues about eight to nine months ago with lower extremity swelling and and eventually some abdominal swelling as well and some ascites. Let me stop you right there. So I'm just trying to clear my mind. So we have our patient who's having worsening lower extremity swelling for several months now. And now that it's progressed to the point that he's also having abdominal distension and ascites as well. The differential for swelling is quite broad and it's such a common complaint. But anytime I'm seeing somebody in the general cardiology office or in the clinic with this type of swelling and abdominal distension, I always worry about heart failure. But I'm sure that you have more history for us and probably a physical exam. Absolutely. So he said he first noticed the swelling in his ankles around eight to 10 months ago. At first, he didn't really think too much of it because he had dealt with some mild swelling in the past. It was annoying, but he could control it fairly well with diuretics. But since then, it's just continued to worsen to the point where he's gone up on his diuretics and still swelling. He started getting concerned when he noticed the abdominal distension, especially. The swelling in his legs was so bad, he had weeping lower extremity wounds and eventually developed cellulitis that had to be treated with antibiotics. When his creatinine started creeping up, he was concerned that his kidney transplant maybe was failing. Yeah, I think I'd be concerned as well about my kidneys in that scenario. It sounds like he's been doing well for almost a decade now, and then all of a sudden he just starts having all this swelling. That sounds pretty crazy, and now his creatinine is also climbing. What did you think was going on with him? 
Keeping my internal medicine hat, we love on the show to say hashtag medicine first because we try to keep a broader differential. And first of all, you guys are just fantastic jumping into that differential diagnosis just right away off the bat, which makes medicine so much fun. I I shouldn't say fun because we're dealing with patients, but it it can bring a joy out of medicine when you have a problem and you develop a differential quickly right off the bat. And then you're sinking your teeth in trying to take patients history and physical and really tease out exactly the etiology. Looking at a patient who's coming in with edema, we think about nephrosis, cirrhosis, and cardiosis as our big three contributing organs that can contribute to edema. And as we're healing the case, and I'm going like, I'm trying to balance it all together. Obviously, he got referred to cardiology, but he presented from hepatology. And then we also have now renal failure. So sometimes these cases can be very challenging in that all three can contribute to the edema or one is the primary. So I'm really looking forward to the future data, more history potentially, and labs to tease out which is the primary insult here. And then we'll sink our teeth or therapies into that particular organ and hopefully make a difference for this patient. Yeah, I am too. I mean, I think you just said everything. And I'm quite interested to see what else is going on, especially with his worsening renal function. That's such a great point. Even though we are cardiology fellows and budding cardiologists, we are still internists at heart and board certified internal medicine doctors. And it seems like a lot of times when dealing with the heart, people get very concerned and sometimes they focus in on the primary cardiac complaints and don't always think about the whole picture. So a lot of times we may be seeing someone who's not been appropriately worked up or diagnosed. And it's not uncommon that the cardiologist service makes diagnoses that are outside the realm of cardiology. So it is important to sometimes get back to your internal medicine roots and look at the big picture and think about all of the data that you have available to you. William, I couldn't agree more. And I always told my interns that, look, everyone, cardiovascular disease is the most common cause of morbidity and mortality worldwide. And so everyone has cardiovascular disease. And by virtue of that, we see patients with every other disease. And so the overlap there is important. And all the time you'll have a patient who's consulted for one reason, and then you end up being the person who diagnosed something else. And so I think it's such an important point. So Rachel, what happened next? They were quite concerned about his kidney function, especially with his creatinine rising. And given the picture with his ascites, the transplant service was thinking he looked like maybe hepatorenal syndrome. In fact, he even had a liver biopsy performed and was sent to see hepatology for further workup and was worried he might need a kidney transplant or maybe even a liver transplant. Thankfully, his biopsy of the liver showed relative preservation of the hepatic architecture and no fibrosis. And the hepatologist was concerned about a potential cardiac etiology of his symptoms. So that's how he ended up in our office. Wow. All the things he went through to come to cardiology at the end. Let's talk about his medical history. He has a history of the renal failure due to IgA nephropathy, status post-kidney transplants, on chronic immunosuppression. He's had recurrent bouts of lower extremity cellulitis, as well as complication of cryptococcal meningitis in the past, and severe malnutrition with muscle wasting. Uh, past surgical history, he had a cholecystectomy, the recent liver biopsy, and then his renal transplant. Medications include prednisone, 7.5 milligrams daily, fluconazole, 400 milligrams daily, cyclosporin, 75 milligrams twice daily, furosemide, 40 milligrams twice daily, and sodium bicarbonate, 1,300 milligrams three times a day. As far as his family history, his father's deceased, has a history of MI and hypertension and alcoholism. His mother, who's alive, had COPD from tobacco use, and he has two siblings with hypertension and also alcohol use. As far as social history, he's never used tobacco, never used alcohol, and never used recreational drugs, and he works as a technical support. 
Great. Thank you so much for going over that, Rachel. And when you think about the patient, there's so much going on and there's so much in the history, but you think about what's in the foreground and what's in the background. And in the foreground, we have a patient who's coming in with low extremity edema, ascites, and we're thinking, okay, what are the causes? And as Dan pointed out, we think, okay, is this cirrhosis, nephrosis, cardiosis? But with this past medical history, we add another layer to that differential diagnosis for third spacing, and that's quasi-orcor, right? Because essentially the reason you have edema in nephrotic syndrome or in cirrhosis is because you have low albumin and so low oncotic pressure, which is a little bit different from why you have edema in heart failure, which is elevated hydrostatic pressure. And so malnutrition with low production, absorption, consumption of proteins uh, can give you a similar picture with ascites and lower extremity edema. And so I think the physical exam will be useful to see if there are actually evidence of elevated filling pressures or hydrostatic issue, or and the labs will be helpful to see if there's an issue with the oncotic pressure, low protein. And then going back to also the other things in the background are that this isn't your typical patient, the immunosuppression, the kidney transplant in the past, these things really broaden the different things that can be going on in terms of predispositions to infectious etiologies. And I'm not sure how to add that into the patient's history right now, but it may become relevant later on. And then uh, if this is cardiosis or heart failure, the risk factor for coronary disease at least is maybe a family history of CAD, but at least we know the patient uh, is not a smoker and doesn't have other past medical risk factors like diabetes, hypertension, or hyperlipidemia that we've diagnosed. So this is really helpful. Thanks for giving us such a rich past medical history. Rachel, thank you. This is absolutely fantastic. And again, we're sinking our teeth into this case as we eat this chocolate cake. And I'll just add, you know, I've had a patient who basically had no initial comorbidities, but several years back also developed IgA nephropathy. And we think of IgA nephropathy as sometimes self-resolved, sometimes we could treat it, but ultimately certain patients require a renal transplant. And you think of that as a distinct clinical entity that, all right, we can take care of that. But for some patients, this IgA nephropathy sets off a domino effect of so many health problems down the road that relate to renal dysfunction. You have a patient that came in with primary renal failure, IgA nephropathy ultimately becomes immunosuppressed because of a transplant and potentially patients in renal failure develop a higher risk for coronary artery disease and calcification everywhere, aortic stenosis, valvular dysfunction. And I just reflect sometimes a patient's etiology could tie down to one thing historically and could be healthy otherwise and really develop a host of other risk factors for so many other other disease entities. So I'm really glad we went through this deep dive into this patient's history. Rachel gave a really good and thorough history. I'm sure that you did a pretty good physical exam on him also, right? You know me. In general, he's ill-appearing, has some temporal muscle wasting. His sclera is anecteric. On his neck veins, his JVD was to the angle of his jaw, even sitting upright. Lungs were clear to auscultation bilaterally. Heart was regular rate and rhythm without murmurs, but he did have a palpable heave over his left chest. His abdomen was distended with a positive fluid wave and normal bowel sounds, and his extremities had two-plus bilateral low extremity edema without chronus venous stasis changes. His vitals were blood pressure 138 over 98, heart rate 98, respiratory rate 12, and temperature 98.5 degrees Fahrenheit. Rachel, we talked about a few different things in the differential for ascites, lower extremity edema. How does your exam help you better understand his overall picture? I think with the chronic lower extremity edema, you know, the JVD is what really sets it apart. Seeing JVD in an upright position to the level of his jaw really made me suspicious for heart failure. Yeah, I'm definitely right there with you. I'm getting more and more concerned about what the heart is doing in this context. Thank you. 
Yeah, and just to be deliberate about that, again, we said cardiosis, nephrosis, and cirrhosis. It's really not the right order, but but with cirrhosis, we expect it's blood flow or plasma leaking out in, in third spacing. And often the neck veins could be flat even. And basically this is really steering us away from that, or at least showing us that there's a contribution. And in nephrosis as well, you leak albumin, you have low oncotic pressure. Certainly renal failure could give you a lot of hydrostatic pressures as well if you're not able to get rid of fluid in the normal way. But usually you're going to also have some underlying cardiac cause to not accommodate for that extra fluids, um, really pointing us towards the heart of the matter. Yeah, and I think the labs here in the next series of diagnostics will be really helpful because say the patient does have cirrhosis, there is a link of cardiomyopathy related to cirrhosis, and there's definitely a portopulmonary hypertension that can give you elevated JBD. And so I think we just need more information, but I'm definitely more concerned about the heart at this point. But did we get labs to help guide us further? We did. So his sodium was 140, potassium 4.4, chloride 106, bicarb 25, BUN 77, creatinine 3.11, glucose 105. His AST and ALT were 25 and 15, respectively. T-Billy was 1.6, albumin of 3.5 with a total protein of 8.8. And he had a normal INR 1.23, hemoglobin of 9.1, platelets of 164. And he had a pro-naturatic peptide elevated at 414. Rachel, those labs, I think, help us a lot here. As you guys have mentioned, the differential is quite broad. The BNP being up, nonspecific, but points you towards a diagnosis of heart failure. But more specifically, the fact that his albumin is not too bad, his INR is normal, all of those liver enzymes are normal, all of that together, for me at least, points me away from a primary liver problem and makes me even more concerned at this point about his heart. Yeah, I agree, William. And we don't have the urinalysis or the urine protein creatinine ratio, but with an albumin of 3.5, it's just unlikely that there's a underlying severe nephrotic syndrome to be causing the swelling as well. So this is really helpful. And I think we're starting to focus in to the heart of the problem. And usually you expect to see uh, some degree of thrombocytopenia as well if the liver is dysfunctional. Again, we're not really getting that liver picture here as much as we expected. So I am, again, heart of the matter, guys, heart of the matter. In addition to labs, we got an EKG and a chest x-ray. EKG showed sinus tachycardia with a normal axis, a rate of 119 and nonspecific ST changes. He had a chest x-ray that was also fairly unremarkable, no pulmonary edema or pleural effusion. With all the exams that you've given and also with his history, the one thing I really haven't heard is any shortness of breath or any type of dyspnea. Rachel, did he have any? Not really. He had a little bit of dyspnea, but that really wasn't his main complaint. We also asked about orthopnea or paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea, but he wasn't having any of that either. Really just the abdominal distension with ascites and then the recurrent lower extremity edema. Rachel, it sounds like most of the symptoms appear to be right-sided heart failure symptoms. And typically the most common cause is from left-sided heart failure. But aside from left-sided heart failure, other causes can be quite broad including any type of lung pathology, pulmonary disease that can be causing this, moving downwards to right-sided valvular issues or any type of right ventricular hypertrophy, and always the dreaded constriction versus restriction that can be causing some of his symptoms. Yeah, Emmanuel, I love how you broke down your approach to isolated sided failure without left-sided failure. And you included essentially a pulmonary hypertension, which is precapillary pulmonary hypertension, and all of the right-sided diseases that we could think about, like right-sided valvular disease, isolated RV, muscle disease like ARVC, RV ischemia, as well as, and I agree, 
the dreaded constriction versus restriction paradigm, which presents predominantly as right-sided symptoms and rather than left-sided symptoms. But hopefully we can demystify some of that going forward. Yeah, guys, this is a fantastic opportunity. And our caveat here is that we do know that some patients do have left-sided heart failure that drives right-sided heart failure, but their left-sided symptoms are less predominant owing to the different lymphatic systems in the lungs that can take care of some of that extra third spacing fluids in the lungs that you don't have necessarily in the periphery. While our antenna are definitely up for right-sided things, especially going back from potentially pulmonary hypertension, pulmonic valve disease, uh, tricuspid valvular disease, RV dysfunction, primary RV dysfunction, or a constriction pattern of basically really, again, that's where the break is isolating to the right side. We could also have a potentially left-sided driven process. So again, I am so freaking hungry to see what this echo shows because it's going to open up a whole new path. It could potentially blow this case open. So really excited to hear about that echo. I agree completely. Believe it or not, he had never had an echo despite eight to nine months of lower extremity swelling. It seems every day we have echoes ordered for toe pain or diabetes, but you have this guy who's got all kinds of swelling for the better part of a year and he hasn't had an echo yet. So naturally we sent him for an echo. I agree completely, Rachel. The fact that he hadn't had an echo yet is a little bit baffling, but we can certainly help him out with that. Emmanuel, I like the way you think about the diagnosis of predominantly right-sided heart failure there. You mentioned primary pulmonary causes such as pulmonary hypertension, arrhythmogenic ventricular cardiomyopathy, primary valvular disease, all of which can be answered for the most part with an echo. So Rachel, tell me a little bit about what the echo looked like. He had an echo performed that showed that his LVF was normal, 55 to 60%, moderate tricuspid regurgitation with RVSP of 40, so in the mild range, and then also noted to have abnormal septal motion, suggested of constrictive physiology, and the pericardium adjacent to the RV free wall was highly echogenic, suggestive of possible effusive pericarditis. Wow, those echo pictures are really beautiful. I can really see actually the, the bowling of the interventricular septum. I know the guys listening right now can't really see the images, but they'll be included in the notes if you want to take a look. It surely does look like it could be possible constrictive pericarditis, but I think overall I may want to get the gold standard with a cardiac catheterization. One thing I didn't mention is he did have a very small pericardial effusion, but didn't have any RA or RV collapse to suggest tamponade, and clearly doesn't have any physical exam findings to suggest tamponade. He did have some respiratory variation in his tricuspid inflow velocities, but he was in AFib during the echo, so it's hard to know what to make of that. Yeah, that's an excellent point, Rachel. Unfortunately, atrial fibrillation is quite common with patients with constrictive and restrictive cardiomyopathy, so it can be a little bit more difficult to interpret their echo findings. The variation of the RR intervals with atrial fibrillation make it a little bit more challenging to interpret the tricuspid and mitral inflow velocities, but it sounds like his echo fits with the overall picture. Even though it is suggestive, invasive hemodynamic assessment is still the gold standard. As a budding interval, Conventional cardiologist, my ears did perk up a little bit when Emmanuel mentioned a calf, even if it is primarily a right heart calf. (laughs) (laughs) All right, relax, William. We did measure simultaneous LV and RV pressures. Real quick, do you guys want to talk about the cardinal like echo findings of constriction? 
The way that I think about it, one of the things that is so cool about constrictive pericardial, if it can be cool, is the physiology. And I think to really understand it, you have to understand cardiac physiology. And normally with inspiration, you're going to have a drop in your intrathoracic pressures. And typically those pressure changes are transferred fairly well to the cardiac chambers as well. What happens with constriction is you have this really stiff, non-compliant pericardial sac that serves to somewhat insulate the heart from those normal changes. So essentially what happens is with inspiration, the pulmonary pressures are going to drop and consequently the pulmonary vein pressures, but that stiff pericardium insulates the LV and the RV so they don't really see those pressure changes and the pressure stays relatively constant. So what happens is the driving pressure between what we measure in the cath lab, the pulmonary capillary wedge pressure and the LV EDP is going to vary with respiration. So essentially, which is that with inspiration, you see a decrease in your left ventricular filling and an increase in your right ventricular filling. And you mentioned the bowing of the septum that we see on the echo, and that's indicative of the increased RV filling. And then you have the exact opposite with expiration, where you have increased left ventricular filling and the septum bows back into the RV. That's how I think about it. Yeah. And then that transpires into the inflow velocities where when you inspire, you will have the higher velocities in the tricuspid inflow and lower in the mitral inflow and vice versa. When you expire, then you will have the higher velocities in mitral inflows and lower in the tricuspid inflow. Kind of gives that respiratory variation that you typically see. That's exactly right, guys. I have very similar thought processes as you do, William. And the only thing I add just to my description when I'm talking to the residents about it is that when you inspire, basically, normally the heart drinks. That's basically how I think about it. Just like when I drop my diaphragm, air comes into my thorax, so too blood comes into my thorax as well. And so normally both the RV and the LV will fill and they are not competing against each other because the RV could accommodate all that fluid by bowing out into the pericardium, which is supposed to be soft and accommodating. And so the RV drinks and the LV could drink, and it's not a tug of war. But when you have this heart locked in this cage, a steel cage, if you want to think about it, or just a really calcified cage, for example, where the heart is, as you said, totally insulated from the changes in thoracic pressure, the pulmonary vessels are actually outside of the pericardium. And so they are not subjected to that. And the IVC and the SVC are also outside of that, uh, that cage. They basically are feeling this negative pressure and trying to bring in fluid. And as that RV fills up and it doesn't have that free wall to bow out and accommodate all that extra fluid, it actually shoves the septum over into the LV and causes the LV to suffer while the RV is taking advantage of this increased flow. And so you end up having discordance between the cardiac output going out of the RV and the cardiac output going out of the LV when normally they're supposed to equal each other. And so that's what ends up giving you this shift in inflow velocities through the tricuspid valve, which again is the fluid coming through the tricuspid valve is going to be different during inspiration than during expiration when there's a shift back now. And now the LV says, ha, it's my turn. And it shoves the septum back into the RV. And so now there'll be more of an increased flow into the mitral valve. Whereas that doesn't happen normally in normal cases, because again, normal cases, LV and RV are getting along. So that's how I think of that. Dan, that's such a great explanation, building on what William said. And you know, one of the things I love about cardiology is that it's very redundant, right? The core principle and the reasons why we see things are pretty straightforward. And once you understand that, then everything else is just a redundant extra way of looking at it. And so 
we talked about how when you expire, you increase the pressures in the thorax, but that doesn't transmit to the LV. And so you have an increased drive from the pulmonary veins to go into and fill the left side. And so in expiration, your mitral inflow goes up, but because of that ventricular interdependence, your tricuspid inflow goes down. And so you have this respirophasic variation in mitral inflow going up with expiration, tricuspid inflow going down with expiration, and then vice versa with inspiration. But for the same exact reason, you get respirophasic shifts in the septum. And so if you do an MO through the personal long axis view, you'll see the septum globally shifting towards the right side because the LV is filling during expiration and then shift back towards the left side because the RV is preferentially filling better during inspiration. And then Conversely, another helpful tool that's more useful in atrial fibrillation, right? Because the inflow patterns can be challenging with atrial fibrillation. The hepatic vein Doppler is very helpful in atrial fibrillation in patients with constrictive pericarditis to differentiate them from restrictive physiology. And so if you think about hepatic inflow, the hepatic veins should be draining into the IVC and then into the right atrium. And so if a patient has constrictive pericarditis, what happens with expiration? That septum's blowing towards the right side and that pressure is being transmitted from the RV to the RA, to the IVC, back up to the hepatic veins. So that you have diastolic flow reversal in hepatic veins predominantly during expiration if the patient has constricted pericarditis. It's all along the same track from the LV to the RV to the RA, IVC, hepatic veins. Conversely, if a patient has restrictive physiology, what happens is the majority of the inflow to the right side, just like in normal healthy hearts, will happen during inspiration. However, the restrictive, stiff, non-compliant right ventricle, it's not able to fully accept all that blood during inspiration. And so during inspiration, when you get that huge bolus going into the RV, it's not going to be able to accept it. And so you get the pressure referred all the way backwards into the hepatic veins. And so with restrictive physiology, you get diastolic flow reversal in the hepatic veins, predominantly in inspiration. So that can be one way of differentiating it. A couple of other helpful signs for restriction versus constriction on echocardiography are looking at your tissue velocities on Doppler. And so your E prime essentially is the tissue velocity of the mitral annulus, and you can look at the medial E prime and the lateral E prime. And by definition, restrictive heart disease, there's a stiffening of the muscle and it doesn't relax as well. And so the movement of the muscle is low. And so you'll have a patient with heart failure, preserved ejection fraction, predominant right-sided symptoms, and your E-primes will be low as you suspect because there's diastolic dysfunction. However, with constriction, it's not a muscle disease. And so you may have normal or elevated E-prime velocities in the same clinical context or preserved EF right-sided symptoms with elevated filling pressures. And so normal or elevated E-prime tissue Doppler velocities of the mitral annulus can help promote that it's constriction and not restriction. And alternatively, with the E-prime velocities, you can compare the medial E-prime velocity to the lateral E-prime velocity. And the normal healthy heart, the septum is a little bit restricted because it's tethered to the cardiac skeleton. And so normally the lateral E-prime has a greater velocity the lateral mitral annulus moves faster than the medial mitral annulus. But in constriction, because of the tethering of the lateral wall to the constricted, inflamed, fibrous pericardium, you'll have annulus reverses, whereby the medial E-prime velocity will be greater than the lateral E-prime velocity. There's so many nuances to this that I had to read more about, but there's just so much richness in the echocardiogram to better understand what the causes are of the symptoms and whether it's restriction, constriction, or something else going on. Yeah, that's awesome, Amit. And uh, it really, again, it always comes down to that fundamental pathophysiology. What is the anatomical problem? And that will generate 
all of what we're seeing in cardiology. Like you said, cardiology is a lot of it is redundant because a lot of it is looking at the same physiology, but through a different lens, a physical exam lens, echo lens, an MRI lens, and a cath lens, and seeing the same phenomena. And since you brought up restriction, again, if you want to anchor yourself, because this is a very complicated discussion, restriction, constriction, it's baffled people for decades. Everybody always forgets about it, even though they mastered it at one time or another. You always have to remember. But if you come back to that physiology, again, locked box, that's what constriction is. And there's intraventricular dependence because of that locked box. That is the key fundamental principles that will explain all of the findings that we're describing here. And then for restriction, it's stiff heart, not a locked box. It's a stiff heart. The ventricles do work in concert together. They're just terrible at filling. No matter what, inspiration, expiration, they just don't fill well. And so there's not going to be that discordance. It's not going to be a fight between the LV and the RV. They're both crying out together. They're both in the same boat. That's going to be a fundamental difference between constriction and restriction. And basically, that is what we're doing by doing all these studies to really tease out what's going on with both of them. They share a lot of common things, but that intraventricular dependence is really what sets them apart. That's great, Dan. And we've begun to unlock that box with the window to the heart using the echocardiogram. And we certainly could have taken the patient to the donut of truth with a cardiac MRI, but the renal function is compromised. So it sounds like we're going to take the patient to the table of truth with a cardiac catheterization. What did we find? So we found that his right heart pressures were up a bit. Mean RA pressure was 20, RV systolic pressure was 40, and RV end diastolic pressure was 25. He had a mean PA pressure of 32 and a pulmonary capillary wedge pressure of 26. We did simultaneous LV and RV pressures, which showed exactly what we were expecting. The LV EDP was 26, as well as the RV EDP was also 26. The left and right ventricular stock pressures were discordant with respirophasic variation, and the pattern of filling during diastole in both the right and left ventricles was consistent with rapid early filling and constant late pressure. One of the typical findings of constricted pericarditis is the ratio of RVEDP to RVSP being more than one-third, and our patient had a RVEDP of 25 and RV systolic pressure of 40 for a ratio of nearly two-thirds. Wow. And Rachel, it sounds like you gave a very nice description of the typical dip and plateau or square root sign that we normally see that very rapid early diastolic filling that then tapers off with constant pressure during later diastole. Yeah. And again, it's the same thing that going back to the redundancy, right? It's such a simple concept, right? You can break down into three phases. You have early, rapid diastolic filling, you have diastasis, and then you have the atrial kick. In the early diastolic filling in constricted pericarditis, you have very high rapid velocities because your backup of pressure is so high. You're elevated. You're here, your right atrial pressure is 20. It's massive. You have a huge drive to fill that right ventricle or a huge drive to fill from the LA to the left ventricle. And so that early rapid filling is extremely fast. However, the heart can only fill so much, right? Because it's constrained by that thick, fibrous, inflamed pericardium. May or may not be inflamed, but that thick pericardium. And so just as blood very quickly enters a ventricle during early filling or early diastole, it just as abruptly stops. And so you think about the different correlates. On the physical exam, that's your pericardial knock. You've got a gush of blood that goes into the LV and then it stops abruptly because it's constrained by the pericardium. On the echocardiogram, you have a tall E velocity or E mitral inflow velocity with a very short D cell time because it stops very abruptly. And then on the right heart cath, it's the right atrial pressure that essentially it dips very quickly and then all of a sudden it goes back up and plateaus because that atrial emptying happens very quickly and then the RV is constrained. And so you've got that backup of pressure and then it stops. So it's just a nice correlate of a very simple concept but you see it across multi-modalities. That redundancy is very helpful. 
Yeah, I agree. It almost it's almost like textbook, but have to remember the the hemodynamics, the interventricular dependence, and the respirophasic variations. All of this sounds and it looks like it's constrictive pericarditis. I'm guessing he was probably sent to see one of the CT surgeons, Rachel. We did. A CT surgery saw him and recommended pericardial stripping or pericardectomy, as it's sometimes referred to. He had a successful surgery and is feeling so much better. He just had a follow-up echo and RV pressures are pretty much back to normal, and he no longer has interventricular dependence. His swelling has improved, his creatinine is improving, and he says he feels like a brand new man. One of the things I love about cardiology is really how we can help people. This guy was miserable for nearly a year sent to hepatology, you know, even considering liver transplant and being able to diagnose him and then getting him the appropriate treatment. It just never gets old. Not to brag, but cardiology is the best. Uh, I'm sure everybody else here agrees. <laughs> I uh, 100% couldn't agree more with you. And I just, he had such a profound course and he was treated and managed so effectively. I just couldn't help but wonder what we think the etiology could have been. And granted that a majority of the cases of pericarditis in general are idiopathic, but there are so many ideologies to consider. Just thinking back to his own personal risk factors, if we dissect this, one, he's had kidney disease, and so there is uremic pericarditis. Another thing to consider is that he's been immunocompromised. He's had infections like recurrent cellulitis and cryptococcal meningitis. So not only was he on immunosuppressing medication, he was actually functionally immunocompromised. And so you could have a whole host of different infectious pericarditis ideologies like histoplasma, TB, viral pericarditis, probably one of the most common causes of pericarditis. And so you have infectious, and then there's inflammatory pericarditis related to a systemic disorder, for instance, rheumatoid arthritis or systemic lupus erythematosus. And then there's a lot of uh, iatrogenic causes. You know, the epidemiology has really shifted, especially with all the work that we're doing in medicine in general. But there's post-pericardiotomy syndrome. If a patient has had heart surgery, this patient hasn't. There are reports of pericarditis following EP procedures like ablation, pacemaker devices, even stenting. There is post-radiation pericarditis. There's drug-induced pericarditis. There is, going along the lines of pericardial injury, there's acute coronary syndrome-associated initial pericarditis and then with Dressler syndrome down the road. But really, again, I think idiopathic pericarditis is probably the most common ideology. And we caught this patient probably after the damage had been done because this patient had a thickened, calcified, fibrous pericardium. But And in this setting, we had to do the right thing and take out the pericardium. But there are situations where patients are earlier in this course when they're having the recurrent bouts of pericarditis or effusive constrictive disease, where diagnosing underlying inflammation and underlying etiology can really help figure out how to best manage that patient. So just a tremendous job figuring out what was going on using multimodality diagnostics and doing the right thing for the patient and taking care of him. And it's, it's just amazing how well he's doing right now. I couldn't agree more, Rachel. The cardiology is absolutely wonderful and so fascinating and really fulfilling. Absolutely, it is. That's why we're all here. Oh, yeah. Anybody have any other thoughts on the case? One of the things that really struck out was the, I think it was mentioned before, was the case of anchoring bias, almost by itself be its own topic, but we typically we get locked down into a particular diagnosis that is it's really easy to forget all the causes. I think when we first discussed, we're medicine doctors first, so it's always good for us to try to get a broad differential and see the patients and get the history for ourselves and not be stuck with a, or not believe the first diagnosis that we're given from a primary service or even the ER. That's right, Emmanuel. We have the dean of the graduate medical education here at the University of Tennessee is actually a heart failure cardiologist, which is wonderful because you know he's always looking out for our, our cardiology fellowship here. But he always says, trust but verify. 
And what he means by that, of course, is we certainly want to trust what others have said about patients when we see them, whether it's in consultation in the hospital or as a referral in our office. But we should also try our best to verify the information that they're telling us, see that information firsthand in an attempt to try to avoid anchoring and some of these other biases that we all fall victim to. Trust but verify. Those are words that we should all live by. And this patient is a prime example. And this has been such a great discussion and it really highlights so much of what's great about cardiology. One, that it's a, it's broad. You still have to be an internist first. And two, that you, know, you really are a master of a subspecialty and you have to use advanced diagnostics and management to take care of your patients. I'd love to hear from you what y'all love about cardiology and how your experience has been training at the University of Tennessee. Beyond this chocolate cake, the chocolate cake, by the way, is just amazing. I highly recommend it for everyone else. Oh, Great. It's all over my shirt because I, I, I can't eat and talk at the same time. Chocolate <laughs> <laughs> cake is, is certainly a benefit. One of the things that I love about cardiology, of course, the, the physiology is very fascinating to me, but I love the variety. Every day is a little something different. You get the best of the inpatient world, the outpatient world. You get some imaging. You get some procedural time in the cath lab. So there's just always something interesting and no day is exactly the same. And that's really what drew me to cardiology in the first place. And to answer the second part of your question, training at Tennessee is, has been awesome. I really can't say enough good things about our not only our cardiology staff here, but the entire hospital. We're constantly growing. It's a relatively new fellowship program. I think this is our 13th year, but we've hired three or four new cardiologists within the last year. We've got an imaging specialist that's just joined us. We've got a heart failure interventionalist starting in a couple of months. And the hospital itself is so supportive of everything we do. In fact, we have a quarterly meeting with all of the residents and fellows with the CEO of the hospital to discuss issues pertaining to the residency programs, and they actually listen and make changes. And it's amazing. And I know that kind of thing doesn't happen everywhere. So we're very fortunate to have that kind of relationship with our hospital here at UT. That's really incredible to, to see how dedicated the leadership in your opinions and your well-being. That's awesome. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll follow up with William. I mean, I agree with just the variety that cardiology provides. I was actually, I trained as a hospitalist for a few years. And one of the things that I missed was outpatient medicine, being able to speak with the patient in that type of setting. And that's what cardiology provides, just a, a breadth of different types of experiences, whether it's inpatient, outpatient, and some procedures. For me, the best thing I like about Knoxville is that it's home for me, but it's also close to everything. You have the mountains. I have a little one-year-old kid, so I frequently take him out to parks from time to time. And I think it's just an amazing place to, to be and raise a family. Yeah, so I'll follow that up. One of the reasons I love cardiology is the hemodynamics. Just can't get enough of just the physiology. And like you said, there's a lot of redundancy, but the redundancy is just going back to the physiology and hemodynamics. And you feel like you can really figure things out and just talk through it, just knowing how everything works. And then really that instant gratification. You know, we've spent most of our lives in training all this delayed gratification, but now we actually get to treat our patients and see them do better and feel better. And that's really gratifying. Also, the variety is a plus being able to do some imaging and do some procedures inpatient and outpatient. And then really the breadth of cardiology is still growing and everybody's still learning and everything is fresh and we're constantly learning new things. It's just can't say enough good things about cardiology. 
As far as our program goes, me and my husband, Elliot, actually couples matched into cardiology here. And this was one of the programs we just felt was so welcoming and just the nicest, most supportive group of cardiologists we've come across. This is home for us. And so we had the opportunity to get to know some of these cardiologists previously, but the people is just so important. Who you work with and who you're alongside, faculty, staff, everybody has just been amazing so far. And it's been great. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with everything you guys said, but you know, what better way to enjoy a discussion on hemodynamics than a beautiful case of constriction versus restriction, especially when the patient had such a great outcome. So congratulations on taking terrific care of your patient. Thank you so much for your time, for taking us on a hike. At least thank you so much for the chocolate cake, but now let's go on a hike so I don't feel so bad about the calories. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for uh, elevating us. Oh, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. We, yeah, thank you for having us. We've enjoyed the, the case series podcast so far. They've been fantastic, very informative, and we look forward to hearing what our colleagues at other fellowship programs have to present in the upcoming cases. All right, and now for the ECPR and message to applicants by Dr. Tuan Overly, our Program Director of Interventional Cardiology and APD of our General Cardiology Fellowship. This is uh, Tuan Overly, one of the interventional cardiologists uh, here at the University of Tennessee Medical Center in Knoxville. I am the Program Director of Interventional Cardiology. First of all, wanted to congratulate all of the uh, fellows on wonderful discussion. I thought it was articulated, explained, and done in a logical, appropriate manner to allow the large thinking to come in and do more deductive uh, processing to figure out this case. So I really appreciated that. Really, from my perspective, I think there's big picture things. There's probably two things that I would focus on in this case. I can't really say a lot more with regard to the discussion because it was so excellent. So there's not a lot to add there. But for me, it's two big pictures. And the first big picture has to do with edema. We get a lot of consultations and you get a lot of evaluation for the causes of edema. So it's important to understand it. It's a very common complaint, as, as you all know, and it's got a long differential diagnosis. As uh, Again, as you guys detailed in the discussion, but one of the things that you'll learn in practice is that You'll get a lot of consultations for this, and not all swelling is heart failure. In fact, most of it isn't. And so it's important to go through that differential that uh, you guys discussed to figure out what the problem is or what the problem isn't, because it can be detrimental if you choose the wrong strategy. Obviously, there are some situations in patients with edema where you definitely want to give them diuretics. But if you've got the wrong process, wrong cause of edema, and you give them diuretics, it can really be deleterious, particularly in patients who are sick or otherwise uh, relatively unstable. So I thought that discussion was excellent. The other thing that we sometimes don't think about is venous disease as being a cause of some issues and problems. And sometimes you need diuretics, sometimes you need aggressive cardiac evaluation, but sometimes you just need an ultrasound to look. Maybe the patient has venous reflux. Maybe they will do well with just compression therapy and basically non-invasive type of treatment strategies. So I think that's really important. But again, the detail, the diagnosis was detailed expertly by you guys. So I don't think I have a lot of comments on that. Other than that, the other big picture item, other than knowing uh, and discussing edema, is knowing and understanding the echocardiogram findings. 
I thought that was really important, the way you guys were able to link the physiology and the echocardiogram, because you figured out, essentially, if you understand one of them, you understand the other. So being able to understand the physiology and echocardiogram is important because they help you understand it. And as one of the other things that you guys discussed, which I thought was critical, is a lot of times when you first learn this, you have to learn it three or four times and then it sticks. But again, understanding the physiology, the echocardiogram makes it really easy to understand. So with that, I'll stop there. So briefly, our program here is at the University of Tennessee Medical Center. It's in Knoxville. It's a relatively new program. I think this is our 13th year. It's a small program. We actually think that's one of the benefits because it makes it really easy to respond to any clinical or educational needs of our fellows. We started out with two a year, and we've actually increased to three fellows a year. One of the good problems we've had is just the tremendous amount of growth in our hospital and our program. In the last 10 years, we've gone from 12 faculty, now we're up to 26 and we've increased our complement of general cardiology fellows. And then four years ago, we started an interventional cardiology fellowship. So there's tremendous amount of growth that's uh, correlating and corresponding with the growth of our medical center. I think the other unique thing, particularly about our program, is the cultural. Most of us here had traditionally come from academic large medical centers. And uh, ours is a little bit different. It doesn't have the traditional hierarchy that uh, a lot of traditional academic institutions have. We treat our fellows really like colleagues and junior faculty. In fact, one of the benefits of having the program here is that we've been able to select around seven of our graduates to enter our practice. We've got some from EP, from interventional cardiology, as well as general cardiology. I think one of the other benefits as a fellow is that it's a very flexible program. Really, other than call, our fellows aren't critical to any of our clinical services. And what that means is since they don't have all these service obligations, they have more time for education or they can spend more time focusing on specific areas of their interest. So if they're interested in EP or interventional or imaging, then they can spend more time to focus on that. In addition to our large hospital service and the inpatient services, our outpatient services are phenomenal. Obviously, you've got your general cardiology clinic, which everyone will have. We also have a congenital heart disease clinic. We have a pediatric cardiologist who's, who's here that sees patients with our fellows. In addition, we have a cardio-oncologist, so that's a rotation within our training program. And of course, we have an interventional cardiology fellowship. And because of that, general cardiology fellows will have a tremendous exposure to all the upcoming and new technology with structural heart disease. Uh, We have a TAVR program, MitraClip and Watchmen and alcohol septal ablations and PFOs, ASDs, the whole nine. So there's a lot of exposure to a lot of the newer and innovative uh, techniques and procedures that's going on. And we're in the process of uh, starting our ECMO program, which will probably start in the first quarter of next year. So it's a really exciting time for our program, and our fellows are very happy and enjoy being here. As far as Knoxville, it's a wonderful city on the Tennessee Rivers, close to the Smoky Mountains. So you get all the benefits of having a uh, major college town 
but it's not just a college town. There's also a lot of several industries in this area that contribute to not only the employment, but also to the academic reputation of the area, because we've got Oak Ridge National Laboratories and Y-12. So that brings in a lot of intellectual talent and wealth as well. But it's really a great place to live. It's got a very low cost of living and very active lifestyle. So we've enjoyed living here, been here for 12 years now, and it's been a great decision. So I look forward to meeting some of you in the future, and I appreciate this time and opportunity to not only discuss this case, but also our program. Thank you. Wow, what an amazing episode. A huge thanks to the fellows and faculty for enriching us with another terrific discussion and an incredible addition to the Cardio Nerds Case Report series. Be sure to check out the show notes for all of the case media available for review, key take-home points and discussion points, and links to the program. If you'd like the educational takeaways and graphics delivered directly to your email, sign up for the Heartbeat, the Cardio Nerds newsletter, by clicking on the link in the episode show notes. We thank the ACC Fellow in Training section chaired by Dr. Nasheen Riza for their incredible support and collaboration. And a very special thanks to our phenomenal production team for elevating the platform. Colin Blumenthal, Tommy Das, Eunice Dugan, Rick Ferraro, Evelyn Song, and Bibin Verghese, internal medicine senior resident at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, as well as the team MedEd mentor and University of Maryland cardiology fellow, Karin Desai. If you love the show as much as we do, be sure to spread the word, rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform, and consider becoming a patron of the show on Patreon. All right, that's a wrap. Time to make like an S-do and split.